Welcome to uh, week two of our series called The Meaning of Christmas. For this series, shorter series than we normally do, um, but what we're doing here is in the weeks leading up to our Christmas Eve services, we're camping out in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you're unfamiliar with it, Isaiah is a book that's filled with prophecy about this coming messianic figure that, to put it plainly, will fix everything. Everything that, that we and sin uh, have ruined ever since the day that we walked out on God in Genesis chapter 3. And because Christians understand Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of those prophecies, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have, leading up to Christmas, spent time looking at those prophecies in Isaiah in order to get us in touch with the meaning of Christmas. <clears throat> so we were in Isaiah ch- uh, chapter 9 last week. Um, building off of that, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11 this week, and I want to read the first nine verses to you. It says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with discipline from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his loins. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fatling will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. None will harm or destroy another on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. This is God's word. Uh, If you missed last week, um, we were in Isaiah 9, and what that prophecy leaves us with is the knowledge that a son will be born for us and a child will be given to us. And late in that prophecy, Isaiah hints at the idea that this child will be a ruler because he talks about how the dominion of this child would be vast. But what Isaiah hints at in chapter 9, here in verse 11, he makes very plain. When he begins in verse 1 and says that a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, Jesse was King David's father. And and that language of a shoot growing from the stump of Jesse is, uh, is Isaiah's way of saying in no uncertain terms that this messianic figure will come from the line of kings of God's people. So this person that the world will be waiting for, this person that's going to set right everything that's been made wrong, will be a king from the line of David. And so what I want to do is just look through this prophecy verse by verse and kind of break it into three moves. I'm going to look at first who this king is, secondly, what this king does, and then lastly, what the effect of this king's reign will be. So first and foremost, let's look at who this king is, and the answer for us is in verse 2. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, 
a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Uh, The overall picture that Isaiah is painting here is that this king, when we ask the question, well, who will this king be? This will be a king of matchless, unparalleled wisdom. And he says that in a number of different ways here. Uh, You notice it says, when it says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, he then refers to that as a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. These are just five ways of Isaiah saying the same thing, that this king will have divine wisdom, which is incredibly good news in Isaiah's day, because if you know anything about where Israel was when Isaiah was prophesying, they were plagued by these incredibly foolish leaders and rulers that were leading the entire nation into disaster. Uh, And so in the face of that, Isaiah is prophesying of this king that will have divine wisdom. And you may have noticed that he ties his wisdom, when he says a spirit of counsel, he, he ties that to his strength. He says he'll have a spirit of counsel and a spirit of strength, which is Isaiah's way of saying not only will this king know what to do in absolutely every situation he finds himself in, but he will have the strength to do what must be done. And in, in verse 3, he goes on and he says that this king will, will exercise judgment and, and work justice, uh, not according to what he sees with his eyes or what he hears with his ears, which is Isaiah's way of saying this king cannot be manipulated. This king cannot be deceived. He will see through to the heart of the matter every single time. He's a king of matchless wisdom. So let me just pause here and, and um, offer a confession. Uh, a little bit embarrassed to say this. Maybe you could say amen to this, but my whole life... I have struggled with looking down on people in Jesus' day, specifically the religious leaders, for not recognizing who Jesus was. And in the back of my mind, I have always kind of held on to this idea that I know is ridiculous, but I've always held on to this idea that I would have seen it. I would have looked at Jesus and I would have known, no, I think this is our guy. And I would have followed him and I would have worshiped him. And I know better than that. But if we could just give the religious leaders in Jesus' day the benefit of the doubt for a moment, what is is at least understandable when you kind of try to put yourself in their position is that when you look at these prophecies here, it's understandable why they didn't look at Jesus and immediately think this is who we've been waiting for for hundreds of years now. Because if you look at at what Isaiah is saying in just verse 2 here, that this this Messiah is going to be this king of unparalleled wisdom and strength, then you would think, okay, so when whoever this, this prophecy is about, when he arrives, he's going to be impossible to ignore. He's going to be impossible to dismiss. People are going to flock to him in even greater numbers than they did Solomon. You, maybe you've heard the story, but, but these, these leaders and rulers from ancient kingdoms would come and just hear Solomon speak Proverbs because of his wisdom. So this, this figure is going to be even greater than that because he's going to have even greater wisdom. He's, nobody's going to be able to miss what God is doing through this individual. And of course, that's the exact opposite what you get when you look at Jesus. From the, from the moment of his arrival here on that very first Christmas evening and all through his, his ministry, what you're seeing in the life of Jesus is something that Paul the Apostle makes plain in his New Testament letters when he says that the, the wisdom of God is nothing like the wisdom of the world. That the wisdom of God, Paul says, it is a direct affront to what the world considers wisdom. It challenges the world's definition of wisdom, and it actually upends the world's definition of wisdom. From Jesus' arrival into humanity and all through his life, 
he just does things the way that we're so sure they can't be done and they shouldn't be done and they wouldn't be done. And yet that is the way that God decides to do it. And one of the specific ways that Jesus literally flies in the face of the wisdom of this world is, is along the lines of the way that we think of uh, success and influence. What, let me try to explain what, what, I, what I mean by that. I think you can make a very strong case that, that no one has had a greater impact on human history than Jesus Christ. Uh, that's a little bit of a difficult thing to quantify, but let me just back that up with some facts. First off, uh, of every human being that has ever turned oxygen to carbon dioxide on this planet, no one has had more books written about him, more art created of him, more songs dedicated to him than Jesus. And the runner-up is not anywhere close. Jesus is well above head and shoulders above everyone else. Um, Not only that, but obviously here we are about 2,000 years after the death of Jesus, and every year billions of people with a B are still celebrating uh, his birth, his death, his resurrection every single year. Um, Not only that, and this is actually, I think, the, the... This is one of the most interesting things about Jesus that that I think forces any intellectually honest person to at least investigate him, even if you don't want to believe that he's God. Just consider this, and I know you know this, I just think it's an important thing to to remind ourselves. The way that that mankind as a whole, I'm talking the, the human race, the way we record time revolves around Jesus. So there are, there's a very small amount of historians that would deny the existence of Jesus because how is it that time itself revolves around someone who never existed? But even among secular historians, it just gives a lot of weight to the fact that something's going on with this man because here we are, it's the year 2022, but certainly nobody believes that we've only been around for 2022 years. It's 2022 A.D., which stands for the Latin phrase Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And when you count backwards all the way to the beginning of A.D. and you get to zero, then every year starts counting in reverse and we say B.C. So literally, human history is divided into two phases. It's the stuff we did before Jesus got here and the stuff we've been doing since Jesus got here. That is a remarkable impact that one man has had on us Uh, That's why H.G. Wells, a noted historian, I found this quote, I think it was back in 2015. He said, I'm a historian, I am not a believer, H.G. Wells said, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of human history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. So let let me ask a question as a thought experiment here. Let's say you wanted to have the kind of impact on mankind that Jesus has had. Let's say your plan for your life is that in the year 4022, people are still studying your teachings, devoting their lives to you, and telling other people that they should devote their lives to you because you've changed your life. And I think you get what I'm trying to say here. Let's say that's your plan for your life. And you asked a team of experts, okay, how do I have that kind of impact on human history? And you pay them some ridiculous retainer, and they do some research, and they come back with their findings. Imagine this. Just imagine this. If the answer they gave you was, okay, here's what you need to do. First off, you're going to want to make sure that you get conceived out of wedlock to a poor teenager, that you come from a town with such a bad reputation that people are convinced nothing good can come from it, 
You're going to want to make sure that you do nothing publicly. You want to live your life entirely in obscurity for the first 30 years of your existence and only do anything publicly for about three years. Make sure that you don't marry, you don't have kids, you don't get a higher education, you don't hold a political office, don't even write any books or manifestos, and whatever you do, don't build any relationships and network with any powerful people that could advance your career in any way. And speaking of your career, this last part's important. Make sure that when it looks like your career might begin to take off, that you are publicly executed in the most humiliating and degrading way imaginable. If a team of experts told you that that's the secret formula for impacting the world, you would want your money back, and yet, obviously, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here, what I just read to you is the resume of Jesus Christ. The point is that from his birth, all through his life, his life is this, 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 it's one long story that's telling us that the wisdom of God is directly juxtaposed to the world's definition of wisdom. Now, there's all kinds of interesting implications we could pull from that, namely, that if we give our lives to this king, this king of matchless, unparalleled wisdom, and we decide to follow this king, that at the very least, it should not surprise us when he surprises us. We'll get, we'll get to that theme before we're done today, but the point is, first off, our first question is, who is this king? The answer is, he is a king of matchless, unparalleled, divine wisdom. Secondly, let's talk about what this king does. The answer to that question is found in verses 3 to 5. It says, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with discipline from his mouth. And he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his loins. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. So the big idea, if you had to summarize what Isaiah is saying there, boil it down to one word, the word is justice. Isaiah is is telling us that's what this king does. He executes perfect justice. So let me draw your attention, first off, specifically to verse 4. Verse 4, it says he will, first off, judge the poor, and obviously, that's, that doesn't come ac- across the way that it's intended in English because when we talk about judging somebody, we're, we're usually talking about condemning them and finding them deficient in some way. That's obviously not what Isaiah means. What this is getting at is that this is a king who will make things just for the poor, for the needy. Right after that, it says that, that he will execute justice for the oppressed. Now, what that's talking about is standing up for speaking up for those who have little to no societal power and therefore are very easy to manipulate or overlook or marginalize in some way. So what Isaiah is saying here is this king will be their advocate. He will be, you know, the great equalizer. Unlike any other ruler in history, this is a king that cannot be manipulated, bought, and sold by the rich and powerful in his day. This king will put an end to injustice altogether. Right, so, so obviously, at the very least, you, you, what you could pull from this verse and what I'm sure people did in Isaiah's day is that this king is going to have a real heart for the, the down and outers, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the oppressed. But of course, uh, it's not until that very first Christmas that we see exactly how far God's heart for the poor and the oppressed would take him. 
Because on that first Christmas evening, as recorded in Luke chapter 2, what we see is that when God entered into human history, he entered into a poor family. The gospel accounts record for us that Jesus Christ during his life lived as a homeless man with nowhere to lay his head. In other words, I know you've heard this before, I just think it's an important thing to stand back from and really consider that when God decided to enter into human history of all the ways that he could have done it, he chose to do it as a poor man. That's how far his heart for the poor and the oppressed and those with no voice and those who were so overlooked and taken advantage of, that's how far his heart for them would take him. And during Jesus' ministry, as so many stories in the Gospels record for us, Jesus, although he could have done this, he did not just forgive people's sins, meaning he did not just minister to the spiritual needs of people. He also did things like feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and even raising the dead. So the implication, at least here, is that if ministry to the poor and to the oppressed and to the marginalized was such a hallmark of Jesus, it should be a hallmark of the group of people who call themselves Jesus followers. And we should, the way that we minister to the poor and to the oppressed should not simply be Uh, you know, kind of standing on the outside of their lives, cutting a check to an organization, even though that's good. And the reason we say that's, that's not complete is because that's not what Jesus did. The doctrine of the incarnation says that Jesus rolled up his sleeves and got involved. He left his throne, everything that was rightfully his, to incarnate, meaning to take on human flesh, live as a poor man, live with the people that he came here to save. And as people who claim to be the followers of Jesus, how can we do anything less? Which, if you're curious, this is exactly why we do things like winter relief. It's not just because it's a good thing to do or it gives us a good reputation or it makes us feel good or whatever. It's because that's what the gospel is telling us Jesus has done for all of us. If it meant something to him and he means something to us, it should mean something to us. Now, let me just pause here. Everything that I'm saying right now is incredibly popular in our culture today because we love somebody that stands up for, you know, the little guy, Uh, stands up for for the person that doesn't have a voice, uh, you know, the protector, the advocate. Um, Obviously, it's no surprise that specifically in the last two years of our culture, you know, the the term uh, justice has been a hot-button cultural term. So in our our society, you know, even to people who are hostile to to the idea of Christianity and and really, you know... um, starkly opposed to the teachings of Scripture, you, you, you tell them what Isaiah is saying about Jesus here, that he's a king that cares about justice and standing up for the oppressed, that's engaging to people. We like that. However, let me just point this out to you, that if you keep reading verse 4 in the second half, it says the same king who cares for the poor is the king who will kill the wicked. Part of me considered, when I was putting this teaching together, just kind of skipping over that, and focusing on the stuff that we like, but I thought, you know, it's Christmas time. Why not talk about God killing the wicked? Uh, that's not just, just, just a joke. That's not why I want to talk about that. The reason I wanted to touch on this is because, um, and I, 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 I can actually, I think I can promise you this, that even if you don't think like this, people in your life do, and you need to have an answer for them if you're going to intelligently communicate your faith. It's passages like this in the second half of Isaiah 4 that talk about, I mean, it's, what it's, it's saying what it's saying, that God's going to kill the wicked. It's passages like this that have caused people outside the Bible to condemn the God of the Bible as this gratuitously violent being and to dismiss Christianity itself as a religion that promotes violence. Again, even if you don't think that way, I'm, I, can, I, I can say with almost 
100% certainty that you know and love people who do think that way, that the Bible promotes violence uh, because it talks about a God who will do things like Isaiah says God will do here in the, in the latter half of verse 4. I want to offer to you that I believe exactly the opposite is the case, that actually the fact that the Bible says that God himself finally will put an end to all injustice, that actually has allowed Christians to be people of peace rather than people that perpetuate violence. To explain what I mean, I want to read you a quote from, from a theologian named Miroslav Volf. Uh, he was born in the mid-50s in Croatia, and he has personally witnessed probably more inhumanity than any, any, anyone who listens to this teaching has or ever will. Now, I want to read you this quote. I say probably, by the way. I don't know that certainly, but probably. Here's what he had to say. <clears throat> My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, speaking of us. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. And what he says next, this is a challenge to me and the comfortable life God has allowed me to live. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Now, here's what I mean. <clears throat> If you have ever asked yourself, why is it that Christians from the first century for the last 2,000 years have been able to serve and pray for and love their oppressors and face their own mortality singing hymns with joy, how is it that Christians have been able to do that for the last 2,000 years? The reason is because Christians for the last 2,000 years have understood exactly one of two things is going to happen. Their oppressors will repent and have God as their father, or they will not repent and they will have God as their judge. Either way, in the end, God has promised that no injustice will remain. Dave Brower sent me an article this week that followed the life of a woman named Miriam. She lived in Burkina Faso, which is a West African country that shares a border with Ghana. Um, and the story that she tells took place two years ago, February of 2020. She was married to a man named Emmanuel, who was an elder in their local church. Um, and one day, ISIS insurgents broke into their home, and before her eyes, they beat her husband to death, literally split his skull open. While that was happening, uh, another group of ISIS insurgents broke into the home of their pastor. His name was Pastor Aramel. 
Pastor Armel had just celebrated his, his 20, 20th anniversary of the pastor of that church, and during the celebration, he told his congregation that in all likelihood they would not see him next Sunday because he knew that the threats were beginning to ramp up and, and the, um, the legitimacy of the violence was real. And he was right. Um, sure enough, ISIS insurgents broke into his home. They kidnapped him, um, a number of men, women, and children, and drove them out into the bush for three days and tried to get them to convert to Islam. And for three days, they refused. And at the end of the 72-hour period, they released the women and the children, but they kept Pastor Aramel and five other men. They told them to start walking, and they shot all six of them dead. At the end of this article, <clears throat> this was the most challenging to me, but it was also the most encouraging and inspiring to me. At the end of this article, Miriam was, was explaining how encouraging it was to her that she found that she had these, these brothers and sisters from across the globe that were, that were praying for her. But she said that while she had to relocate from where she was, because after that went down, um, the ISIS insurgent says, we have not finished what we started and we will be back. So for the sake of her younger children, she had to relocate. But at the very end of the article, she made sure to mention that she's, she's found a new church and she's, she still attends church and worships Jesus every single Sunday. If you have wondered, and, and again, that's not 50 years ago, it's not 500 years ago, that's two years ago. If you have ever heard stories like that and wonder how on earth can people go through that kind of injustice, you know, in, in, in Burkina Faso where she was, there's no 911 to call. There's no higher authority to appeal to. There's no letter to write. There's no awareness to raise. It's just might makes right. They're on the wrong side of that so that they're, they're at the mercy of their oppressors. There's nothing that they can do about it. If you've, wonder, if you've wondered how somebody could stare that kind of evil in the face and not be completely stained by it, that they could continue to worship Jesus without a hint of bitterness, without a hint of hard-heartedness, or without even hopelessness, the answer is found here in the second half of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. It's because for 2,000 years, God's people have held on to the notion that the God they worship is a God of justice. And somehow, in the end, he's going to make everything right. First off, he is a God of unparalleled wisdom. Secondly, he's a God that executes perfect justice. But, but the third question I want to look at today <clears throat> is what the effect of this king's reign will be. <clears throat> it's found in the final verses of this prophecy, verses 6 through 9. It says, The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fatling will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. None will harm or destroy another on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Those words obviously are poetry, but what Isaiah is saying here is that this king is not just going to make the world a better place. He's not just going to help us get the ball down the field and improve things for us. He's saying something far greater than that. He's saying that the reign of this king, when it is finished, it will completely transform this world. Now, next week when we're online, Anthony Hall is going to be preaching that message. And uh, I read his manuscript this weekend, and, and what's really amazing, he, he goes into great detail into what this renewed creation is going to be like. I would encourage you, please tune in next Sunday if you have the time, because it is, it's an incredibly hopeful thing that we would be wise to spend as much time talking about and dwelling on as we can. But if I can just give you the 30,000-foot view here, what Isaiah is saying is that this king is going to get rid of violence. 
He's going to get rid of fear. He's going to get rid of pain. He's going to get rid of lack of unity and lack of harmony, not just person to person, but even person to nature, person to creation. In short, this king will abolish this enemy that we have had no answer for since Genesis chapter 3. He's going to get rid of death itself. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is this king is the king that we have been waiting for all of our lives, the king that at least a part of us knows we were made to live under the rule of. Now, I shared this with you back in, um, it was our summer series out of uh, Ephesians, but as soon as I, I, I read this prophecy, I knew exactly, it's the first thing that it brought to mind. When COVID first hit <clears throat> in the summer of 2020, uh, I decided for the first time in my life to begin reading the literary genre known as high fantasy. I'd never read a book that fit into that category before. It had all kind of been, you know, personal development or theology or, or things like that in, in you know, things were just so heavy, so uncertain, so negative that I, I just, it seemed like a good idea to me to put something beautiful before my eyes. And so I got into all the classics. I read the, the Narnia Chronicles, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. And what I found as I read those books, and this is what I've told people since then, is that, and this is why I would recommend that anybody read books like that, is because when I read them, they, I felt like they were making me more human, which is a really weird thing to say. But what I mean by that is that they almost, um, it was like they woke up parts of my heart that I didn't know existed, and they, they sort of awakened these desires and these longings that, that I didn't even know were there in a way that, that something like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or How to Win Friends and Influence People, as valuable as those books can be, they just can't, they can't do to you what, it, what a beautiful high fantasy book can, can do to you. And let me get more specific than that. So in the, um, in the third book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I quoted last week, uh, it's called The Return of the King. All through that trilogy, one of the, um, one of the main characters, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with this, his name's Aragorn. He's this character that's, that's just impossible to not admire. <clears throat> and I was thinking about when I was putting this together, what is it about that character that is so admirable to me? And for me, it's, it's on the one hand that he is, he's so strong and he's so brave that he's willing to stand up to these impossibly powerful, terrifying forces of darkness. But at the same time, he's a little bit of a paradox because he's also so kind and he's so gentle that the book actually says his hands bring healing to his people. He's not just a warrior, he's also a healer. And when you trace his character arc through the book, he, he's just, I, I, for whatever reason, this really means a lot to me. He's just as steady as an oak. He is, he's so squared away in his convictions. He's unwavering. There's no hesitancy in the things that he says, the things that he does, the path that he walks. But with that, there's not a hint of arrogance. He doesn't need you to follow him. He doesn't need you to agree with him. He's just, he's capable of doing what he knows he's called to do. And at the end of that third book, when he finally takes his place as king, the way that Tolkien writes the story, it's almost like the world itself begins to heal. And when I got done reading that book, I found myself, really for the first time in my life, I just stood back almost in awe of how much my heart desired to live under, the king like, uh, under a king like that. And I'd never even realized it before. And since that, since going through those books, I, you know, in my time with God in the morning, reading through the Psalms, I find myself talking to God about that and being so thankful that he is that king. But I never knew that that desire was there until I read that story. That this desire to live under a king that I can safely hand my whole life over to him and not worry that he's going to lead me astray. Knowing that he's going to take care of these forces of darkness, he's going to heal me, and that somehow he's going to set right everything that's wrong with this world. 
And you, know, you look at the Lord of the Rings as kind of a standalone story, but what's, what's fascinating, and this tells us a lot about just hu- human nature in general, is that that story just keeps popping up. And every time it does, it's, it's so meaningful to people, regardless of their belief system or, or worldview. Because if you think about it this way, what I just described to you in the Lord of the Rings is essentially the plot of the Lion King. In the Lion King, Mufasa, the rightful king, dies, and Scar takes his place as the wrongful king of Pride Rock. The people suffer. And then when Simba returns, challenges Scar, overthrows him, and takes his rightful place as king, Pride Rock flourishes. And if you've seen the movie, which who hasn't seen the movie, you notice that's the end of the story. Because, and I have no reason to believe that the authors of that story were particularly religious or, or, or Christian, but it's like the writers knew when they wrote that story and they got to the end, they didn't need to write anything else because that's the most satisfying conclusion there is. It's the same thing with the legend of King Arthur, which has been around forever. It's this belief that there's this king out there who when he returns, he's going to cause justice to flow like a river through the land. People are going to flourish under his leadership. We love those stories. We've always loved those stories. But what's, what's really fascinating is that history doesn't tell us that story. History gives us no reason to believe that that would happen. Because history, is, as long as we've been recording it, is the long, sad, repeated tale of these rulers that every time they rise to power and have absolute authority, they are corrupted absolutely by it. And yet there's something deep within the human heart that causes us to hold on to this idea that I know it hasn't worked yet, but maybe that king is out there. Maybe we just haven't found him yet. And if he would just return, then everything that's wrong would be set right. And according to Isaiah's prophecy here, and according to the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the reason that that story has such a draw for human beings. The reason that our hearts love that story is because that story is true. And what Isaiah is saying here some 700 years before it happened is that this king that we've been waiting for has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And even though Jesus was not the king that anybody expected, including his own disciples who spent every day with him for over three years, he is precisely the king that we needed. A king who, when he came here, he came not with a sword in his hands, but with nails through his hands. A king who did not wear a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He wasn't raised up on a throne, he was raised up on a cross. And unlike every king in human history, instead of demanding that we give our lives to him, first gave his life for us. And the promise of the gospel and the hope of Christianity in general is that when we bend our knee and bow our head and submit to the lordship of this king, then what happens is this healing power that will one day restore the entire universe enters into your life and begins the full scope, wholesale healing and restoration of you personally. What a thought that is. What a thought that is that the power that will one day restore the universe begins restoring you when by grace through faith in his name you put your trust in this king. So that, that's who this king is, that's what this king does, and that's, that's what effect this king's reign will have. But you know, similar to the way I ended last week, the question that I had at the end of this is why would God, through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, tell us all this? Why tell us about this king who has perfect wisdom Uh, that this is the one king who promotes perfect justice, that this is the one king whose reign will lead us to this peace and this healing that we've lost, but we've we've been looking for all of our lives. And and let me offer you my answer after sitting on this passage for a week. The only answer to that question that makes any sense to me, it's, it's really twofold, is first off, 
First off, what, what is this prophecy here for? Because God knew that most of his people would be living on the other side of its fulfillment. So why is it here? Why are we studying it? Why did God preserve in his word? Here's my answer to that question. There's obviously a bunch of them, but here's mine. It's so that while this king, please follow me here because we're almost done. <clears throat> it's so that in reading this prophecy, we would understand that while this king in his perfect wisdom and his perfect justice will often do things that surprise us and confuse us and even enrage us. We should not be surprised at that. I mean, unless we think that we as well as Jesus have perfect wisdom, it should not surprise us when our wisdom does not coincide with his, that he surprises us, that he confuses us, that at times we even find ourselves enraged by the decisions that he's making and the the places that he's leading us, and we just don't see what he could possibly do with this. This prophecy is here so that we could go back to it and know that even though this king may very well surprise us in his perfect wisdom and in his justice, this prophecy is a powerful reminder that if we would just follow him, if we would just submit to him, if we would just allow him to reign and rule in our lives, then somehow, some way, eventually, he will take us to the peace and the healing that we have been looking for all of our lives. We're nearly at the end of our time together. I just want to end today with a story and a quote. <clears throat> About 150 years ago, author, an author named George MacDonald wrote a children's book called The Princess and the Goblin. George MacDonald, if you haven't heard of him, um, I don't know that there is higher praise than this, but this was the author that, that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien actually considered their mentor, the guy that taught them how to write what they referred to as fairy stories. I haven't read The Princess and the Goblin, but I've read a number of stories, uh, a number of summaries about it. The story's about an, um, an eight-year-old girl, she's the protagonist, her name's Irene, and in the attic of her home, occasionally... Uh, her fairy grandmother appears. And one day, uh, her grandmother gives her this ring with a thread that's tied to it, and she promises that, that uh, she'll hold the ball of thread on the other end. The only catch is that the thread is actually completely invisible to the naked eye. It can't be seen. It can only be felt. And what that means is that you can't stand on the outside of this thread and see where it's going and decide if you like where it's likely to lead you. You simply have to hold on to it and begin walking. And so her her grandmother tells her that if she ever finds herself in any danger, all she needs to do is put the ring under her pillow, feel for the thread, and follow it. And it will take her to her grandmother. And Irene, in hearing that, is ecstatic because she knows that she now has a lifeline that will get her to her grandmother. And her grandmother tells her that while that's true, to not be surprised if you are surprised by the path that that thread leads you. However, as much as it doesn't make sense to you, as hard as, as hard as it might be to continue to follow it sometimes, what you have to hold on to is the hope that while you hold it, I hold it as well. So an, uh, um, a period of time passes, and sure enough, these, these evil creatures attack Irene's home, and she can hear them clawing and scraping outside uh, her bedroom door in the hallway, and she has the presence of mind to do exactly what her grandmother told her to do. So she puts the ring under her pillow, she feels for the thread, and she begins to follow the thread, and it takes her out of her house to safety. But the longer she follows the thread, the more she begins to realize to her shock and to her horror that this thread is leading her to the place that she most wanted to avoid in the entire world, which was the cave that these evil creatures actually lived in. 
And so against every inclination of her heart, she follows this thread into this winding maze of a cave system, and the thread leads her to this wall of rocks, essentially a dead end. And so she figures, you know, maybe I misunderstood or somebody forgot something or my grandmother was wrong, but at least I can follow the thread out to figure out how to get out of here. But she discovers that as soon as she begins to follow the thread backwards, it completely disappears. This is a thread that can only be followed forward. And so she begins to break down and cry, and she feels hopeless and despondent, but eventually she realizes the only way to follow this thread is through this wall of rocks, so she begins to try to pull them down. And as she does, she cuts her hands, her fingers are bleeding, she's in a tremendous amount of pain, she's lost, she's alone, she's afraid, she's terrified. But slowly as she continues to pull these rocks down, a small opening in the hole appears. And on the other side of that wall, she hears the familiar voice of her friend whose name was Curdie. Curdie uh, had been captured by these evil creatures and he was absolutely thrilled but shocked that anybody had, had found him. And so he asked Irene, you know, how on earth did you get here and why on earth would you come here? And she said, my grandmother and the thread that she left me led me here and I'm beginning to understand why. So she begins to continue, or she, she continues to pull the rocks away until the opening's big, big enough for Curdie to crawl out. And he crawls out and he begins to exit the cave system, but Irene continues to go further in. And Curdie tries to stop her and he says, what are you doing? That's, that's crazy. That's where I was trapped. That's, that's toward danger. There's no way out there. I looked, I couldn't find anything. And Irene looked at him as calm as could be and said, I know. I believe that everything that you're saying is true, but that's where my thread leads me. And so that's where I have to go. And onward she went. And the story has a happy ending because, of course, her fairy grandmother is wise and loved her and knew what she was doing and she could be trusted. But the reason I tell you that story is because commenting on that story in his book titled Jesus the King, Tim Keller had something that was incredibly meaningful for me uh, to read. And so when I read it, I highlighted it and I decided I would end our time together today. So as I read this quote, worship team, you can come on up. He said, when Jesus told the disciples, we're on the way, follow me, they had no idea where he was going. They thought he was going to go from strength to strength to strength. They had no idea. Imagine sitting down with a seven-year-old and saying to her, I'd like you to write me an essay on what you think it's like to fall in love and be married. When you read the essay, you'll say it isn't very close to reality. A seven-year-old can't imagine what love and marriage will be like. And when you start following Jesus, you are at least that far away. You have no idea how far you'll have to go. Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to take you on a journey, and I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I want you to put me first. I want you to keep trusting me, to stick with me, not turn back, not give up. Turn to me in all the disappointments and injustices that will happen to you. I'm going to take you places that will make you say, why in the world are you taking me there? Even then, I want you to trust me. The path Jesus takes you on may look like it's taking you to one dead end after another. Nevertheless, the thread does not work in reverse. If you just obey Jesus and follow it forward, it'll do its work. You say, that sounds pretty hard, and you're right. How can we possibly follow the thread? It's simple, but profound. Jesus himself does absolutely everything he's calling us to do. When he called James and John to leave their father in the boat, he had already left his father's throne. And later, he would be ripped from his father's presence on the cross. And here's how he ends. This is the most meaningful part to me. Maybe God's brought somebody to the other side of this teaching that needs to hear this. 
it's going to look as if your thread is taking you into dead ends, places where you will get bloody, where the only way to follow the thread looks like it could crush you. But don't try to go backward. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you. He followed his thread to the cross so you can follow yours into his arms. I don't know where Jesus is leading you at this time in your life, what he's calling you to face that you'd rather not face, where he's calling you to go that you'd rather not go, or what he's calling you to do that every instinct in your heart says, I don't want to do. What I know is that this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 is a powerful reminder that though King Jesus may confound us in his perfect wisdom and his perfect justice, that if we just follow him long enough, wherever the thread leads, he'll take us to the peace and to the healing we've looked for all our lives. Whatever we have to walk through, whatever the valley of the shadow of death is like, however long we're there between now and that day, we'll know when we get to where he's taking us, it was worth it. He can be trusted. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, after this, all I can say is thank you that you can be trusted. Thank you that you're the one king, you're the one leader, you're the one ruler that we can safely submit our entire lives to. We can come before you, bending our knee, bowing our head, handing our whole lives over to you, knowing that you will never lead us astray. You will not crush us. You will not take advantage of us. You can be trusted. I don't know where people are coming from this morning. I'm sure that there's people here in a place that, that only you and them know. Only you and them know what they're going through and what they have ahead of them. So please help them to keep following the thread, knowing that King Jesus can be trusted. It's in his name we pray. Amen.